0: Welcome to the National Association of Scholars' podcast, Curriculum Vitae. I am delighted to um, have as our guest today Dr. Wilfred Riley, Assistant Professor of Political Sciences at the School of Government at Kentucky State University. Um, now. He has a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University, a law degree from the University of Illinois. He is widely published, uh, Commentary, Quillette, USA Today, Academic Questions, the NAS's own journal, and several notable books, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't talk about. Uh, His academic research interests include international relations, American race relations, positive and negative impacts of diversity on societies, and the use of modern empirical methods to test sacred cow theories. Uh, The people who are hosting him are yours truly, David Randall, Director of Research at the National Association of Scholars, and Peter Wood, President of the National Association of Scholars. Now, having said all that, um, we have a bunch of topics to ask you about, largely having to do, I think, with race relations. But I'd like to start actually with, you know, there is a remarkable amount of talk about race and racism everywhere. And it's usually remarkably loosely defined. Mm. How do political scientists define those concepts?
1: Well, that is currently, as you know, one of the most heated debates in our discipline. So the traditional definition of racism, I think, in quant social science is what everyone thinks of when they think about racism, which is disliking other human beings because of their membership in a race. So if you look at Snyderman and Carmine's great quantitative papers in the 90s, they just defined racism as a strong dislike of blacks or whites. It was fairly easy to ask someone if they were a bigot i.e. if you'd be unwilling to work for a qualified African-American boss or kiss a beautiful black woman at the end of a date or live next to a stable, middle-class black family, as I recall, these are some of the metrics used for racism. So that's traditionally racism. I mean, you could simplify it, you dislike black people or Hispanics or Irishmen or whatever the case might be. Right now, we're seeing a major fight at the level of 1984's Department of Words about the meaning of some of these concepts. Uh, Webster's Dictionary, was contacted so many times by a 25-year-old left-wing activist that they recently agreed to add a new definition to the subtitle bars for racism. And I think that's where the concept gets tricky. Right now, a lot of people are arguing for the idea of systemic or institutional racism, sometimes phrased as subtle racism. And this essentially is the idea that any system that produces disparate outcomes, I think that's fair to say, is racist. So in How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Kendi, Ibram Kendi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, says that when you see major gaps in any system, i.e. incarceration rates, performances on the SAT, any system-produced gaps, you're probably looking at racism. And he offers up a two-part hypothetical. Either you can believe the system is in some subtle way racist, and we have to try to track down that racism, or you can believe that there's something— permanently wrong, seriously wrong with the group competing in the system that's doing badly. So his argument essentially is that you can either believe in systemic racism or be a racist. An alt writer might be a more accurate term. And I think looking at the work of people like Thomas Sowell, the OG in this field, I think that's nonsensical. I mean, very often we see that if you adjust for what you could call changeable, situational, or cultural variables, gaps that are glibly attributed to racism simply disappear. Um, I've noted, for example, in past papers, once on television, that there is an income gap between blacks and whites, for example. The average individually employed African-American man earns about 80% as much as the equivalent white guy. And that is universally, now closer to 85%, but that is universally attributed to racism on the left. The reality, though, is that if you adjust for just three or four things, um, average age, um, the most common age for a black guy is 27, for a white guy it's 58, Um, region of residence, more African-Americans live in the South where wages are lower for everyone, Uh, Years, not even quality of education, the gap disappears. So I find the test scores are also in there, those were the four variables. So I find the institutional racism argument to generally be unconvincing. But that, that is the claim that's being made, that we're redefining racism. Racism in the classic sense just means disliking people because of race. If you don't dislike people because of race, until quite recently, you would not have considered yourself to be a racist or thought seriously about whether you were racist. Now there's an attempt to broaden that idea.
0: I get, actually, so I've got a political si- science focus. At, it seems to me that part of what you're objecting to is that political science is able to quantify, measure racism by the older you know, definition. And it seems to me that you're saying that the arguments for institutional racism, systemic racism, don't meet these political science quantification tests that maybe can't even be quantified. Is is this a reasonable way to put it?
1: I think that's a reasonable way to put it. But I would also say that actually we can run fairly simple quantitative tests and often find that the argument for institutional racism disappears. So to me, and I think it's fair to say to most in the quantitative portion of this field, Racism would consist in treating two other, one of two otherwise identical people differently based only on the variable of race. So it, it is obviously not an act of prejudice to treat an African-American graduate of Bluegrass Community College worse in the job market than a Caucasian graduate of the University of Connecticut or of Cornell. I think pretty much everyone would agree on that. It would be an act of racism to treat a black Cornell graduate with the same SAT and GRE scores listed on their resume dramatically differently from a white Cornell graduate. And what we find when we look at institutional racism, again, is that if you adjust for some of the things that I mentioned, like age, the gaps that are generally attributed to race simply disappear. So if you look at a black guy, resident in the North, average age 30, With a solid SAT score and a college degree, they actually are going to have a slight advantage very often, certainly they would in academia, in terms of earnings and so on over the same white guy what people making the institutional racism argument are often doing and it took me a while to realize that this is simply a fairly crude metric in many cases but is looking at the initial gap in, for example incarceration rates and saying well that's racist now from that starting point we have to figure out where the racism is in this system so this leads to this process of what people have often called ghost hunting for racism Um, I think that it's worthwhile to say no, obviously, I don't think anyone denies that African Americans and a number of other groups, Appalachian whites, tend to be in a worse starting position in terms of social class because of abuse in the past. I think it's important to recognize that not to make excuses about it. But once you adjust for the impact of those abuses in the past, which in many cases could simply be called social class, I don't see huge gaps in terms of things like earnings. So I I do think we can quantify that. I just think the results might not be what those in the systemic racism school would want to see. And yes, I, I prefer the older definition of racism because I tend to view it as more relevant. You're looking at individual behavior and motivations. If you find that on a wholly anonymous survey, desks four feet apart, same race interviewer, people are saying, well, I would not hire a black guy, that gives you an excellent measure of how much prejudice you might encounter as a black guy going out into the job market. If you're simply looking at a set of statistics that say black people are 9% less likely to be in this field, you don't really offhand have any idea what in the hell that means. There could be some racism. Black people could just be less interested in that area of study. There could be fewer African-Americans with degrees in the field. And this often comes up entertainingly in academia. When colleges will engage in a little bit of breast beating saying, well, in our ornithology department, if you look at some of the larger upper South schools, we don't have a single Black professor. The obvious question would be how many brothers got Ph.D. level degrees in ornithology that year, etiology or a lot of these other subfields. Without knowing that, without knowing that entering metric, you can't really say anything about the bigotry of the field. However, you certainly can look at the statistic 10 percent of blacks dislike whites or whatever that might be and say, well, that's probably the figure given anonymous survey that I, I do think is more useful data.
2: Um, David's uh, question focused on your discipline in political science, but once you get going talking about systemic racism, we're picking up the vocabulary that has uh, pretty much swept through all the social sciences and other disciplines as well. Is it reasonable to look for distinctions between the way political scientists are handling this and sociologists, anthropologists, people in psychology?
1: I I think this varies not just with the discipline, but with the scholar. So you often see almost two separate conversations going on at once, where one would be the individuals that are attempting to actually measure using traditional metrics or some innovative new metrics like list experiments, what the level of racism is. Uh, in my terms, and the other being individuals writing often more theoretical work talking about how almost philosophically we can escape the problem of systemic racism. In fact, there's a very complicated conversation going on here. My own take, just opening up front with a bias, is that as traditional racism has substantially declined. If you look at the Pew and Rasmussen and Gallup polling figures, and a lot of those do come out of political science, but they are hardly discipline specific around things like support for interracial marriage, what you find is that at the start of the polling period, which I would suppose to be in the late 1940s, virtually everyone, black and white, was opposed to interracial love marriages. You then find that by the nineteen nineties that had fallen to half or two-thirds. Today the percentage of people, and this is all citizens, I didn't haven't broken it down recently by black and white, that oppose interracial marriages is on the order of twelve percent. So we've seen this very substantial decline. At the same time, you've seen scholars become, in many cases, quite well known by coming up with or itemizing new definitions of racism. So people now speak of white privilege. I guess that would come out of Peggy McIntosh. You could argue Andrew Hacker, the value of whiteness, Cheryl Harris, cultural appropriation, uh, the gays, systemic racism, institutional racism. A cynic could say that if your job is studying racism and racism has declined by 90%, you have to find something You have to come up with new content categories that continue on this pursuit of a perfectly post-racial society. So I think there are two conversations. One is people almost at that boring Gallup polling level looking at the the 30 classic questions, which I still find quite useful work, and saying, okay, we're down to 8%. Um, I looked at the support for non-traditional candidates figures yesterday in the strict political science. And I found that 8% of people would not vote for a well-qualified black candidate for president for their party, which is troubling. But I mean, you, you find similar levels of opposition to Catholics, women, and so on. So you have a residual core of bigots. I also found it interesting that 24% of people would not vote for a well-qualified gay candidate, now, 37% wouldn't vote for a well-qualified Arab or other Muslim, I believe is the wording. So there's, there's still some prejudice there. And in fact, in the traditional field of research, we find that the prejudices are shifting, So that illegal immigrants or LGBT individuals or Arab Muslims might now be the targeted out group that could sometimes be harassed, if you're talking about a high school athletic environment, by whites and blacks and people of, you know, Italian and Irish, what wasn't always considered white heritage together. So that I I find is interesting data, but that's one block of the research. And the other, I think, is exploring these new ideas of racism, and we've seen that really since the late 90s, and there's quite a lot of that. I mean, white fragility didn't drop until 2018, and that's currently the number one best-selling book on Amazon. I'm actually currently prepping a review of it for commentary, which is interesting. Just got done reading the whole thing. But I think you do see the white fragility school here, and then you see the older quants and the polling companies and so on on the other side of the fence. And so you have two pictures. If you're looking at what was always defined as racism until relatively recently, things look almost rosy. Um, only 8% of whites or blacks wouldn't work for or vote for someone of the other group. However, if you're crossing the fence and you're looking at ideas of privilege, appropriation, so on, you can make the argument that there's an increasing amount of racism, more whites are studying karate or something like that. So there there certainly is a split. And that, by the way, I, I see some chuckles from the panel. I mean, this is this is a real thing. I mean, there was a young woman recently that was nearly, quote unquote, canceled Because as a popular high school student, she wore a Chinese-style gown to, I believe, her prom. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I recall, her date was also Asian-American. This became a front page international story. Should white women be allowed to dress in uh, kimono fashion, if you look at some of the Japanese, the return to traditional gear in Japan and so on? Um, So there is a serious serious, quote unquote, conversation around this kind of thing. At the same time, we find traditional racism continuing to fall.
2: Well, you bring up this uh, term, cultural appropriation, which uh, I'm an anthropologist. I find it fascinating in that uh, it's the nature of culture to absorb ideas and customs from other people. And it's, uh, without that, we don't even have a spoken language. Uh, so the attack on the idea of cultural appropriation is at the very least overstated, In that uh, we can't do without it, Um, but uh, if you narrow it down to those forms of appropriation that are somehow demeaning to the group that's being borrowed from, there isn't much there. I don't know what examples one could find of truly offensive cultural appropriation these days. Any
1: come to mind? Um, no, I mean, the one that does come to mind, I think, would be something like Native American mascots. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you've, you've seen a dialogue there recently. The one, actually, this gets into almost humor on the Washington Redskins have retired both the mascot, Noble Chief, and the name Redskins, but they haven't thought of another name. They're apparently focus grooming to pick grouping to pick a name that won't offend anybody. So for at least the foreseeable future, they're the Washington football team, um, You know, and the logo, people have been making jokes about this on the Internet. The logo would just be giant letters spelling out WTF, which is literally (laughs) the order in which that would go. Um, It turns out that the owner, Dan Snyder, who's a colorful character, he had owned the patent or the copyright, I suppose, copyright and TM for the logo and name Washington Warriors for years. He just kept that in his back pocket as a businessman. But he had lost the patent in some kind of legal battle with one of those copyright-holding companies a month or two before the name change was forced on him. So right now, the name that they had had in reserve for decades is gone. They may or may not buy it back. And they can't figure out whether they even want to call themselves warriors because that could offend someone, violence and whatnot. So right now, they are just the football team, and they're going to see how long this goes on. I will say it can go on for a while. I mean, I went to the University of Illinois, I-L-L-I-N-I. But um, our mascot for many years was uh, Chief Illiniwe, uh representing a warrior of the local Illini tribe. And when we retired the chief a couple of years ago, it was a situation much like this one. And we said that we were immediately going to pick one of those spunky Big Ten mascots, like the Fighting Squirrels or some such. But the student body couldn't agree on it. And the faculty senate has voted down several suggestions, as faculty senates tend to. So right now, we are just the block eye. If you look at our shirts or if you look at the band during games, I mean, the, the mascot's essentially the letter I, and this could go on for a while. So I don't know how long Washington's going to be WTF, but I wish them luck. At any <laughs> rate, I mean, that is, that is one example you can think of. You, you probably shouldn't have a team called the Savages or something like that. But in general, I, I, find, there to be, I find cultural appropriation to be a nonsensical idea. White privilege, at least, we can discuss. I don't think anyone denies that there are some situations, perhaps trading floor hiring, where a six-one Caucasian blonde would have some advantages. Uh, cultural appropriation, and of course, there are situations like affirmative action entry to Ivy League universities, where a student of color would have some significant advantages. But in terms of cultural appropriation, I mean, as Peter, as you mentioned, coming from an anthropological perspective, everything humans do is borrowed from someone else. Right. Um, if cultural appropriation were a real thing, I mean, I couldn't wear pants or shoes, you know, most of the civilized African peoples preferred sandals and robes. You could argue whether either Caucasians or blacks could grow crops which come out of that fertile crescent area populated by people that I suppose would be Middle Easterners and 23 and me genetic terms you know, who developed hunting, who first developed automobiles, these would be questions that'd be relevant to the debate. Um, I do find, by the way, that the way left-wing activists get around this is generally to say only white people can do something. Yes. So when I've brought up these points, you know, I'm a you know, lower upper class black man, got these shoes from Brooks Brothers, can I wear them? The general response is, of course you can, you poor victim. You're not who we're targeting. You know, the the goal is to stop white people from borrowing these things from other cultures. So some sophisticated uh, debaters in this field will say, well, we only want people not to borrow from cultures that they have oppressed or warred with. But again, coming from a political science standpoint, that would still bar 75% of human exchange, if not all of it. I mean, a classic example of a culture that the USA has both oppressed and warred with would be that of the Japanese. So, I mean, if you take this idea seriously, I mean, we fought a war with that culture with mutual exterminatory intent on the minds of the leaders on the two sides, does that mean that we can't today enjoy sushi or that, you know, I mentioned Brooks Brothers, that Japanese salarymen have to trade in their beloved suits for a kimono and a katana? And I think the idea when you actually break it down in that kind of practical framework strikes most people as absurd. And that, that is, frankly, how it strikes me. Um, it's worth noting that the idea of cultural appropriation actually completely invalidates the value proposition for diversity. I mean, if we're talking as academics, I mean, it's a well-known fact that diversity has a number of disadvantages as well as advantages, one of them being increased conflict and decreased social trust. And what everyone has always said on the pro-diversity side, the which I am on, is that the advantage of diversity, which compensates for that, is cosmopolitanism, if you will. I mean, improved art, culture, cuisine. You can learn from these different sorts of people. Greatly decreased groupthink. But if you are told as a white American that, in fact, you can't, uh, professionally, or at the level of a large dinner party, prepare um, South Asian food. You shouldn't really grow your hair in dreadlocks or plates. It's it's a bit tacky for you to get down to hip hop music. The art. The question becomes, and I've had many urban white friends ask this what good does diversity bring to the table if we can't learn from those around us? Doesn't that just mean that we're more likely to be surrounded by angry strangers that retain their own culture sort of unchanged, unmelded? And that to me is a very persuasive point. I mean, I learn, I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood in Chicago and enjoy everything from making burritos, and art I learned from Hispanic friends, to skateboarding and art I learned from Caucasian friends. I would have simply looked bemused at sort of this fool talking if when I had been 17 or 18, someone had said, well, you can't do that because those people look different from you. There's no advantage to having people around me that look differently from me if I can't do that. So uh, to me, uh, that's a largely valueless idea.
0: I have an, I, I'm i going to wheel us back towards the political science aspect, because I must say, I, I am actually fascinated by this. It seems to me there's two different conversations going on. One of them, you're talking to other academics, political scientists, and saying, for heaven's sakes, look at the statistics, do things rigorously, no. but... Maybe I'm too pessimistic, but when you're talking to a popular audience, how far can statistics go to persuade them?
1: That actually is a fascinating question um, that gets back almost into sort of the ancient Greek pathos versus logos arguments. Um, I would say I hope quite a bit. Um, I've had some success. So to give an example of this in practice, um, I've had some confrontations on the debate stage and that sort of thing with the Black Lives Matter movement. And obviously, if this even needs to be said, I oppose what I would define as actual racism. I teach at a historically Black college, although a very diverse one. I want to see Black people successful. But many of the things that Black Lives Matter says strike me as, frankly, fictional. So, I mean, uh, advocates for the BLM movement on a number of occasions have said things like, there is a genocide going on in the United States. Um, In fact, that's the title of uh Benjamin Crumps recent best-selling book i believe it's Open Season The Legalized Genocide of Colored People and the general argument is that there is so much police and vigilante violence against African Americans especially black men that it's very hard to survive in the country and this has been said openly um, Cherno Biko, a couple of years ago, BLM advocate, went on Fox News and said roughly every day, a black man is brutally murdered, by which I took to mean a totally unarmed, unprovoked shooting by law enforcement. So these claims are made frequently. Um, when I and other empirical social scientists have actually looked at the data, and there obviously are entire databases maintained of all recent police shootings, uh, Washington Post, the counted is a pretty good one. There's also www.killedbypolice.net. If you actually look at this information, I mean, you find, for example, the total number of unarmed black men killed by police on duty in the most recent year on record was 15, um, and that number was only recently recalculated from nine. Uh, my research associate Jane Lingle points out. I mean, it was nine for almost a year until, in fact, myself and Heather McDonald and other people started using this figure in public. Apparently, they reclassified a couple of cases involving multi-ethnic individuals or where they originally hadn't known the victim was black. But I mean, when I've gone on a public stage, kind of getting to the point, and said, you know, my opponent says there's a genocide going on here, the total number of unarmed brothers killed last year was nine, I found that to have a significant impact. Because very often, what people are told by the mainstream media is so different from reality that presenting reality can have a significant impact. I mean, that said, There is, you know, there's an advantage to being the debater on the pathos side as well, right? I mean, so one of the chapters of Taboo, my most recent book, is just called The Police Aren't Murdering Black People. And obviously, I mean that in the generality. But I mean, a response that I get to that is, what about George Floyd? Wasn't he murdered? So I mean, a skillful player can hold off the onslaught of facts for quite a while. But I do think the facts have value. Um, to state another sort of virtually never mentioned datum, the average age of a COVID-19 victim is 82 in the USA and Europe. That doesn't mean we shouldn't treasure our seniors. That doesn't mean we shouldn't block non-medical visits to nursing homes, so on. But I do think that if you ask the average person that in terms of why they're walking around with a face shield at Whole Foods and so on, they would not know that fact. And awareness of that fact would change their behavior dramatically. Um, Following up on that, I mean, the total number of people under the age of 35 out of about 100 million in the USA that have died of COVID-19 is roughly a 1,000. You can find this just by Googling uh, CDC COVID right. deaths by sex age. So when, when you say things that are factual and that are at that level of impact or of drama, I, I do think people respond. But yes, I think that a lot of the argument around symbolic racism, systemic racism, so on, is to some extent non-factual. This actually, you mentioned this in my, I notice I have a lengthy bio up on Amazon that I should probably edit a little bit. But one of the things I mentioned is that I want to use modern empirical techniques and not always necessarily quantitative techniques, but what we do in social science to test some of these claims that are made at the upper level of popular discourse that I don't think there's a lot of support for. For example, I mean, one thing I'm interested in doing and have done at a small scale is just giving a standard metric of privilege, 100 questions that ask about stability and happiness to different, to thousands of people throughout the country, and seeing what impact whiteness has on that as versus upper class status, age, and so on. You can test white privilege pretty empirically. Uh, I just don't necessarily, on the quote unquote other side, always see a lot of interest in doing that.
0: I have another sort of academic question, but this actually gets to you know, speaking to a popular audience. When you teach, when you're t- talking to your students, how much do you, well? How much do you have to unteach them? Uh, and how much, you know, is, it, how, how much have they? Is the misinformation of the media already present by the time they get to college? How much is it something they pick up in college? Or do they bristle hostilely when you teach in class your students? Or, I've, or scared, just say,
1: hmm. I've certainly had some hostile reactions, but I actually think when you're talking about like my more controversial classes, like American government, race and society would come on at about that freshman level. So, I mean, they haven't yet gone through that process that often culminates in grad school for students at this level where you just hear the woke viewpoint very often for eight or nine years. They're at the very beginning of it. So most of them are pretty receptive. What I find isn't so much hostility as just having never heard the other side, never having heard it, never having heard Tom Soul or, for that matter, Tom Hobbs, but rather having come strictly through that Kendi, D'Angelo, you know, worksheets and spreadsheets matrix that you often get in good urban high schools. So they, they haven't heard some of this stuff. I mean, in the first time I taught my 101 class, um, students were talking about the idea that racism is everywhere and that makes it fairly hard to succeed. And I gave what I thought were the pretty standard counter-arguments from John McWhorter, Thomas Sowell, Amy Chua. Um, one of them was, well, how do you account for the fact that all of the most successful groups in the USA are non-white? Um, none of us are denying racism, but don't you think, guys, that the combination of you know, prejudice on our side, if we're being blunt, Plus affirmative action, plus the fact that eighty to ninety percent of people aren't racist gives us an advantage in some situations. And I thought these were this is pretty standard stuff. I mean, most people know that Asians do pretty well in income and IQ terms, for example. And it struck me that most of the kids had never heard these arguments before. Um, several of them asked me if I'd thought of them myself. Uh, others asked if is there a source where you can find you know income by race, and it's a Wikipedia page. It's a uh, chunk of the census website. It's about a seventh of it. So I said yes, and I showed them those links, and I think that did have an impact on those kids. So I find that college kids actually are pretty eager to learn and to develop their philosophy of life. They don't generally enter having a fully developed philosophy of life. And I think that this actually is a problem in terms of diversity in the academy. Um, I'm not a radical right-winger myself, if you're talking about my perspective on gay rights or my girlfriend's feminism or something like that. I mean, whether we should have a public option in terms of health care. But I or I was a businessman for quite a while. I did fairly well. I'm sort of an ordinary taxpaying citizen. I own a few guns. And I think my perspective is dramatically different from the mainstream in the academy. And there's a good deal of data on this. I mean, Yale University, actually, or some of their uh, computer metrics guys on campus recently calculated that the school is zero percent conservative, there, what became what was originally just sort of a blog post actually attracted the attention of the College Fix, the Wall Street Journal, but they ran a series of equations and they said it's definitely stat zero. It's less than, you know, 1% Republican, Libertarian, so on here in New Haven. And I would expect that to be pretty much the same in Cambridge as well, or for that matter, Ann Arbor. So you don't want to say something like they trap the kids before the kids learn to think, but you certainly have a long tradition of radicals in the USA, France, and other major countries moving into the educational system so that they can, quote unquote, shape the development of young minds. And I find that if you get the young mind before that happens, people are often very willing to listen to, you know, John Locke or Adam Smith. So on. there's no reason they wouldn't be. These are greatest thinkers in history. Malcolm X wasn't all that far left for that matter. So I enjoy running through that stuff and I find kids pretty receptive to it.
2: Hmm. You're a, um, uh, among the growing body of Experts who have uh, views that differ from the New York Times' 1619 project. Um, I put myself in that category as well. I've been working on the topic since that August 18th, 2019, when the New York Times released its report. The major uh, contributor to that, Nicole Hannah-Jones, just uh, two weeks ago, decided that the 1619 project is not a work of history, after all, that it is what she now calls a narrative, um, and uh, she's sticking with that. She's now retroactively discovering that it was never a work of history, it was always a work of narrative. Um, do you care to comment on that distinction?
1: Sure. I mean, I think if her claim is that it's a work of partly fictional narrative, I mean, she might want to reconsider what to do with that Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction journalism. I mean, I have no hostility for Nicole Hannah-Jones, but I mean, I definitely am. I'm a member of the 1776 Initiative, which is actually directly intended as a response from the black business and social scientific communities to 1619. I mean, when a number of people from Dr. Wood to Dr. Wood's son, Bob Woodson, the founder of uh, 1776, read the initial 1619 essays. I mean, the idea was somebody needs to say something as a reply to this. So, again, 1619 is interesting because as a black man, I don't deny that there was a great deal of bloody violence in American history. Blacks were brutally oppressed, certainly through 1865. and I mean, Jim Crow and so on beyond that. But slavery existed from 1776 to 1865 in this country. Obviously, Jim Crow, period of oppression as well, though, confined largely to the South. Um, Both blacks and whites took the country from the Native Americans. I mean, I'm a decent chunk American Indian, as I would say, by background. And I mean, the Buffalo soldiers weren't white, but obviously the initiators of the policy of conquest were. you saw 400 years of racial wars between natives and incomers, with millions likely dead on both sides. Natives obviously got the worst of it. Lack of disease resistance played a big role. But anyway, this is all well known to any well-read citizen. So no one wants to minimize that. At the same time, 1619 accomplished, or took on the interesting task of making history seem even worse than it was. Um, A great many of the claims of the 1619 Project simply aren't true. I mean, the argument that the Revolutionary War was fought, I believe she said primarily, uh, Hannah Jones did, to preserve slavery is a fantastically fictional claim. Um, Whatever Britain might have done in the home islands, slavery was legal in overseas British colonies for 52 years, you guys might correct this, after um, the Declaration of Independence was signed. I mean, so saying that is an ahistorical view that puts aside the Intolerable Act, Stamp Act, Sugar Act, French and Indian War debt. And I mean, that was almost universally condemned, as I understand, by Revolutionary War historians. Um, And this went on throughout the project. I mean, there was the claim that African-Americans fought largely alone for our freedoms. I was actually curious enough to look at this. I mean, when the Civil Rights Act passed by a pretty substantial majority, The United States Senate consisted of 98 white guys and two people of color, and those two guys were Asian. So I mean, denying that there was a substantial body of allies fighting together to accomplish these things is silly, minimizes a lot of the work done throughout history by decent white and black people. And just so on down the line, uh, slavery is what made the United States rich. I mean, the South was a feudal backwater until the Civil War, it's why they lost. This is one of the most widely known facts in history. So yes, I, I am one of a group of people that is responding to this. And I think it's a pretty impressive group of people. I mean, the roster for 1776 includes, for example, John Sibley Butler, uh, Glenn Lowry, Carol Swain, Coleman Hughes, Jason Hill, myself, Bob Woodson. I mean, just so on down the line. Uh, Ian Rowe, who runs one of the country's larger networks of charter schools. So, I mean, I definitely put our top, uh, you know, our starting lineup up against that for 1619. Uh, And I mean, one of the comments that we have heard is, well, you know, half of you guys aren't historians. The very simple comeback there is that although we almost all are social scientists with PhDs and so on, but most of the people working for 1619 aren't historians. Again, um, no no personal dislike, but my understanding is Nicole Hannah-Jones has an undergraduate BA in history, which is what she refers to as my history background and so on. There are two historians on the entire lineup for 1619, maybe three. So I would agree that this isn't a work of well-done empirical historicism, but it's interesting to hear them say that after taking home a Pulitzer. I mean, I, I definitely think that there'll be some some darts flying in the near future because of that.
2: What, in your view, is the reason that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and her collaborators and New York Times as a whole were willing to something that is so ahistorical. They knew in advance that some of these claims were false. We know that now because fact checkers have come out and said we warned them.
1: Um, So, Walt, how do you do it? I'm actually going to see if I can pull that up. 1619 fact checker. Yeah, that was an interesting piece. I mean, that was the front piece of Politico. Yeah, I helped fact check the 1619 Project and the New York Times ignored me. Uh, On August 19th of last year, I listened in stunned silence as Nicole Hannah-Jones, a reporter for the New York Times, repeated an idea that I had vigorously argued against as her fact checker that the patriots fought the American Revolution in large part to preserve slavery in North America. I mean, yeah, I don't need to read through the entire piece, but I mean, I think that The short answer is that there are both academic and political components to the claim of widespread systemic racism. Um, One of the things that I've noted often as a writer, I'm fairly non-shy about saying this, is that there is a fairly substantial grievance industry in the United States. So um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, a one-sentence way of putting this would be that they have a slightly larger endowment than my university. Um, they have a well-invested endowment of 470 million. I'm sure it's increased since I last looked. Um, they take in a little bit under 100 million every year. And not all of that obviously goes into the endowment or is invested. So that's a, that's an enterprise on par with a Fortune 1000, if not Fortune 500 corporation. And they hardly stand alone. I mean, if you look at the civil rights sector in the USA, you have kind of the old lions, uh, Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push Coalition, whatever it's now called. It's gone through a number of business-style reincorporations. You have the new players on the block. I mean, Sean King and, you know, the organized BLM chapters. He and players like Patrice Colortz have helped set up, you know, CARE, the Council for American Islamic Relations, I think you'd have to mention, Um, all of the incorporated Occupy and BLM and so on chapters. Black Lives Matter, as a group, raised something on the order of $520 million dollars. Uh, following the death of George Floyd. I mean, putting, again, those those figures in some context. And then you of the large fringe groups, the Nation of Islam, the Aslan movement, uh, allies in the media academia. The point here is that there is a pretty substantial block of people with an agenda around how to use the idea of continuing ongoing racism to change society. To some extent, there'd be no particular reason to keep giving BLM or the SPLC hundreds of millions of dollars if we accepted... The fact that there is now substantially less racism. So, in terms of motivation, I think 1619 was, I don't know whether or not they thought all of the things they were saying were true, but I certainly think that there is an underlying agenda of we need to be teaching this in the schools to promote in game goals like reparations. Um, and I, I think that that is a large part of why a lot of the political left has uncritically. Accepted 1619. There are policy implications of 1619. I mean, one of the essays notes, for example, that the USA has a very competitive healthcare system that is not entirely nationalized because of the impacts of slavery and of segregation. There was a desire to give lower quality healthcare to blacks. And as I recall, that essay also notes poor whites and so on. Whether or not some of that is true, the policy implications there are fairly clear. If you accept this as 100% factual, it becomes unethical to oppose a national system of health care. So I, I think this is why there's been such a coalition of forces around the 1619 Project saying, yes, this is correct. If it is correct, we have massive, massive changes to make as a country. If, on the other hand, it turns out that a relatively diverse group of well-intentioned whites and blacks fought against slavery and, si- and forced civil rights, then those goals become less pressing. And I think many people in high positions would like those goals to be as pressing as possible. What is uh,
2: 1776 Unites, the, the name of Bob uh, Woodson's group, uh, doing specifically? How's What's its uh, pushback against the project?
1: Well, to some extent, as that's a, First of all, that's a very I will provide an in-depth answer, but that's a valid question to ask of any sort of think tank, which is essentially what 1776 is at this point. I mean, so what do you guys do? Do you just sit in offices and write papers? Uh, there is a substantial component of that. I mean, every member that I mentioned of 1776 is still producing our own work. And that goes well beyond critiques of 1619 to actual analyses of things like the history of slavery and the future of America. And we are also preparing our own response across a lot of these sort of vectors. For example, 1776 is prepping a school curriculum. And we've had a substantial amount of interest in that from school districts around the country, although there's probably a difference between those that want the 1619 curriculum and those that want the 1776 curriculum in terms of location and so on. But the, the great black charter schools and so on have been, been wonderful. We've been exchanging with them. Uh, so work, curriculum... Public appearances. I mean, I, the the standard things you would expect. And we're discussing most of us, as I mentioned, or many of us, at least, if you look at uh, John Sib Butler, for example, have a business background. So, seventeen seventy six has raised an amount of money that is in at least the seven figures, as I understand by this point. Uh, and some of that is going toward the charitable initiatives of the Woodson Center. One of the Woodson Center's ideas is that you can use, quote unquote, conservative principles like encouraging fatherhood or providing jobs or sitting down and negotiating with fighters in the gang scene to clear up violence in slum areas more effectively than you can do so by simply giving out money. And I find that to be correct. So we are we're doing that as well. We're directing some of the fu- those funds uh, along that pathway. We're, uh, we're thinking about opening up our merchandise store where you can buy things like your white privilege card for $20. You can show it in the store and see how much. Being Caucasian allows you to take off your grocery bill. So there, there's quite a range of things that we're working on. I mean, I'd say most seriously, we're working on an academic curriculum. Uh, we're working on kind of a speaker's bureau where people can book that uh, lineup of kind of home run hitters we have on deck. Um, and we are interchanging. We're trying to take some of the funds people have provided and actually use them in useful ways in Black communities. Uh, One thing, our most sort of most near future upcoming event is actually um, focused on the idea of de-racializing poverty. So I'm one of the organizers of that, along with uh, Bob Woodson and along with J.D. Vance, who's the author of Hillbilly Elegy. So we'd like to hold a conference-style event in Youngstown, Ohio, which is where J.D. Vance is from, along with one of our collaborators, Clarence Page, and have panels discussing, you know, what's happened to Rust Belt America, the outsourcing of jobs, illegal immigration, so on down the line, and looking at the actual issues that have made so many heartland Americans, black and white, pour into people of few or no means without necessarily just focusing on the sole issue of race. One of the major issues of a lot of the initiatives on the political left is that they ignore poor whites, if you're talking about how to deal with poverty. And that is more than 40%, I believe still more than 50%, of the population of the poor in the USA. If you actually look at a list of the 10 poorest counties in the United States, a good number are in Kentucky. But they are almost invariably Caucasian, Appalachian hollers, Indian reservations. The sort of legendary working class black neighborhoods don't make the top 50. So we want to help the people in Harlem, but we also want to help the people in Harlan. if I can get away with some rhyming here. I mean, we want to, we want to pro- propose a narrative that would generally, that would provide principles that would help most Americans. And I think we're, we're at least well along the path toward doing so. So you're using the word narrative as well. Well, I think that narrative in the, well, actually, I think you could avoid Using any flowery language, I mean, if, if you look at one of the things I was told by a coach when I was 16 that turned out to be accurate, it's simply a fact, is that if you do just four things, uh, graduate from high school, take any job and work hard, don't have a kid until you get married or you're 25 and don't get convicted of a felony, you will never be poor. It turns out that that's not exactly accurate. Your chance of being poor, as a social scientist said, to check it out, but is at 0.07% or something like that. So there are some people that fall through the cracks, physical disabilities and the like. But I don't think that we need to propound a windy narrative for black or poor white men at 1776. We could just tell them those four things. And we do. That's in the curriculum. So I think that there is an organized, concerted response to the 1619 idea that the country is a hellhole, And there's not much you can do about that without broad-based systemic change, and I'm I'm glad to be a part of it.
2: Um, Well, since the National Association of Scholars has a particular interest in the educational side of things, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what's being baked into the 1776 curriculum. What is it that K-12 students need to know about this country and other countries that would constitute a valid basis for becoming citizens of our free republic.
1: Well, no, I will say both the 1619 and 1776 curriculums are supplementary curricula. So we're not, we're not pretending to design a social studies class kind of from the pyramids until today. But I mean, in terms of uh, components of the curriculum, One of them is telling the stories of African-American figures and white allies that are largely forgotten by the political left. One of the things that an example would be Robert Smalls, for example, who's one of my personal heroes, who escaped slavery, um, pretended to be a Navy captain, stole a Confederate gunboat, gave it to the Union, was made a military officer and retired in the U.S. North as a rich businessman. Another would be Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, so on down the line, Booker T. Washington, who's become one of the most universally ignored figures in American history, obviously one of the most influential, most significant black leaders. Now the perspective seems to be he didn't do quite enough to violently resist, you know, white supremacy, which is a real thing at the time. But a fair percentage of our curriculum is simply stories about these individuals that would be emplaced in a pre-existing, for example, social studies curriculum. But one of the focuses as we develop a more full-length curriculum. I would say that our primary focus is discussing things honestly, but in context, if you're talking about slavery, for example. So it is good to have a warts and all view of your society. It's not good to have a no-warts view, but it's also not good to have an almost entirely warts view composed only of your people and your culture's historic failures. And we find that our opponents far too often swing in that direction. So, for example, um, we're currently working on about a 20-page slavery insert right now. I mean, part of that would be discussing the horrors of American slavery. However, part of it would also be noting that the Black community in the USA grew entirely out of about 300,000 enslaved persons that were shipped to America. Uh, That didn't happen in Latin America of the 12 million slaves that were shipped out of the African motherland, those to arrive in Brazil, for example, where your quote-unquote master might very well by our standards today be a person of color, were quite likely to die. So we would discuss American slavery in the context of other forms of slavery that existed at the time. I think if you had, uh, depending on the amount of time allotted to the curriculum, I mean, obviously you'd want to discuss slavery throughout history. You know, slavery existed in Greece, slavery existed in Rome, um, I would devote, I've argued for devoting at least a page to the Barbary slave trade, which consisted largely of whites sold by black or Muslim masters, quote unquote. Um, a diverse group, the Moors, actually. I don't know if you'd call them black by our standards. But at any rate, slavery is a very complicated topic that spans all of human history until the past hundred years or so, and that would be our focus. So examining knowledge and context is a focus of 1776, and individual narrative stories of people that have been successful or how racism impacted you on a day-to-day basis, how white allies interacted with black individuals during the Underground Railroad, that would be a focus of the curriculum. Um, It's often been noted, I believe this is a direct quote from John McWhorter, so I won't, won't plagiarize from the man, but it's often been noted that there seems to be a positive hostility on the hard left to black success. Um, And I I find this to be true. I mean, for example, black men still trail white men in terms of income um, in large part due to our greater level of involvement with the criminal justice system, if we're avoiding excuses here. However, black women, if you're looking at personal income for the past several years have been within, I think, $2,000 of white female incomes. The gap's nearly closed. Um, Black women currently make up uh, something like five out of six black kids, black youths who test as genius, people with genius-level intelligence, and this story is simply never discussed. And to some extent, that's because it poses a substantial challenge to the primary pre-existing narrative. Why would black women, who presumably suffer under the dual burden of being black and being female, be performing better than many other groups in the country while black men are struggling? There's there's not really a way to explain that using sort of the 1619 starting propositions. So we want to examine black success throughout history and perhaps create a different set of starting assumptions. Again, the, the figures here are often very startling. No one denies the oppression of African-Americans. Again, no one denies bloody ethnic conflict between whites and blacks with you know, deaths on both sides. But if you look at, for example, the fatherlessness rate in black communities throughout most of history, this is not a legacy of slavery. We were doing rather well. I mean, Walter Williams notes that in 1938, the black out of wedlock birth rate, the quote unquote illegitimacy rate was 10 percent. It might have been 11 percent and 4 percent for whites. The Caucasian community didn't have this problem either. So that's something worth noting in any lesson about black history. What was the perception of black fathers at a certain point in history? What did the black family look like? And that leads inevitably into these questions like what happened? I mean, I'm sure all of you know the illegitimacy rates today. It's 72% for African-Americans, 35.4% for Caucasians, 66% for Hispanics and Natives. So when you actually start looking at history in the context of actual empirical data, rather than from the starting point of a pre-assumed dialectic st- style narrative, you often find a lot of interesting things that are very important and relevant. And that's, that's what we'd like to communicate to kids.
2: Thank you. David?
0: Ah. So, I mean, you, you talked about economics I suppose, as one of the things you would like to focus on. I, I'd like to sort of rephrase that. What if suddenly you know, the entire nation took a Prozac pill and somehow race identity politics disappeared from people's concerns, or at least as they're currently done? What would Americans care about? What should they care about? And I guess that's asking for your quantitative insights, too.
1: Well, that's, there are actually a lot of levels to that question. I mean, at the first and most basic level, I mean, if race prejudice disappeared, to what extent would things change in black communities or, for that matter, poor white communities? I would say a fairly slight degree. Um, there's not an extraordinary amount of community race pre- or contemporary race prejudice using the definition I provided earlier, disliking right. other individuals just as members of a different race. Most of the issues we see in Black communities are, again, as read the fatherlessness rates, mirrored in poor white communities, Hispanic immigrant communities. some of them are the result of culture that developed during a period of past abuse. Others are the result of modern intervening vectors like the welfare state. But if you just got rid of racism in terms of the jobs that individuals would have and so on, I wouldn't see a dramatic shift there. But what would people care about? I think mostly the things they care about now, um, who they're going on a date with this Friday, what's for dinner. I mean, I think that One thing I will say is that I don't think most people are obsessed with race or with class. Uh, 20% of marriages are interracial, indicating that at least one person in five doesn't care who they're with as long as they love them. Um, I think that what you have is a small group of influential people that have seized the levers of not power, thinking back to the business world, but discourse right? Academia, the NGO sector, the mass media, and are using them to promote ideas that are to some extent, if you look at, for example, the idea about whether transgender individuals should play competitive sports, almost on the fringe of society, but that because of this group's dominance, we hear about a great deal. Um, I'm not a conspiratorial guy, but in the 1930s, I believe, the communist theorist Antonin Gramsky actually proposed this as a technique of attack on stable societies. What he said was that rids, the term he used, were very unlikely to take control of the military or agriculture, you know, big business, competitive athletics, so on down the line. So it was very important to seize the mechanisms of discourse, Um, the press, which at the time I suppose would have meant radio and the broadsheets and so on. Now we obviously include television, we include social media The universities, the elite high schools, which he called the academies, uh, so on down the line. I don't know about the NGO sector in the Italy or Russia of the time, but to some extent that's happened. And so we hear very frequently things presented entirely from one perspective on the political scale. We noted that data on Yale, where it's zero percent conservative. Um, I do suppose that so there's an answer to your question. I do suppose that eliminating any interest in race on the part of most people would change that the media would presumably have to go back to talking about the actual biggest issues in society, cancer treatments and overseas wars and so on, as opposed to um, popularizing every incident where a black man is killed by a cop or a white guy is beaten by more than three black guys. I mean, I think that would be a positive change. The lack of concern about race would certainly remove a lot of non-data-based discussion of race from everyday life. And people would go back to, thinking about what's for dinner thank you for joining curriculum vitae a podcast
0: by the national association of scholars the show notes will include the articles we've discussed during this podcast and writings by dr riley be sure to check out our full archive of podcasts and videos on our website www.nas.org and follow us on twitter at nas.org and on facebook